This Week in Startups is brought to you by Linode is the leading independent public cloud provider. Create an account and receive a $100 credit at linode.com slash twist. LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. Post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash twist. And Masterworks. The first company allowing investors exposure into the blue chip artwork asset class. Twist listeners can skip the 30,000 person wait list by going to masterworks.io and using promo code TWIST. All right, everybody, welcome to This Week in Startups. I got a treat for you. You know, I've been doing the news program. And somebody said, hey, why don't you have somebody come on and chop up the news with you? And I thought, you know what? Alex Wilhelm is the best person to do that. He's a senior editor at TechCrunch. And he is part of the First Name Club on Twitter, at Alex. You can follow him right now. And he hosts their equity podcast, uh, formerly blah, 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 Next Web, TechCrunch, <laughs> Mattermark, Crunchbase, whatever. He's been around the block, uh, and he now lives uh, in the Northeast, still in Providence or wherever. Yeah, yeah, I'm still in Providence. But when you start looking at my resume and going blah, 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 it makes my 32nd birthday land a little harder than it did last (laughs) week. So thank you for making me feel ancient. Uh, You're not ancient. I mean, you still got you still got some energy. Uh, How's your energy level now in year two of this goddamn pandemic? You know, I'm actually doing okay. We've adapted to having a third dog who's actually racing around my office right now. Fantastic. uh, Yeah, but dogs wake up at like five. And so I've been waking up at like five. And so I've I've learned how to just be kind of chronically exhausted, Jason. Um, I, you know what? It's interesting you say that. We got a pandemic dog. We got another bulldog. So we have good. a 15-year-old bulldog, Fondue, and then we have a new one, Maximus, as in Gladiator Max. And he's like nine months old now. And yeah, Max loves at 5.30 in the morning to yep. walk in a circle and do the pee-pee dance, mm-hmm. which is, if you don't wake up, I'm going to pee. Yep. And you know <laughs> that is a great motivation to jump out of bed in terror that you're about to be peed on. That, that's yeah. literally my life. No. I, I'm just very lucky. My, my wife is studying for her boards right now. So she has to wake up really early and study before work. And so that means that I can usually pass off the, the three dogs to her, but it didn't work this morning. And so at 5am, there I was picking up dog crap in the backyard. Just yeah. a really great way to spend a morning. I, gotta I mean, say. It, it used to be so nice to go to an office and be an adult and live in a society. It was a really interesting society. Do you remember society? I remember a lot of public transit in San Francisco, waiting for yeah. buses that were full when it was raining, standing on the sidewalk, and then drinking right. bad coffee in an office when everyone had a cold. So, like, I, I, I dismiss your romanticism, and I love working from home, which I know we'll get to in a little bit. <laughs> it's interesting when you think about it. Like, was there anything that you enjoyed about going to the office? Oh, gosh, have- yeah, I, love, I love working less. It was great. Like, because at the office, there's so much stuff that looks like work. Oh, that so isn't. true. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like a meeting or oh, a walk and talk. Yeah. yeah. Or getting lunch with your colleagues, team building, all that stuff. Now I just ninety so min- like- The old 90 minute lunch with the 15 minute walk on either end. You get 2.25 hours out of the seven and a half hour day. Fantastic. Jason, I never worked for Google. That's not how my <laughs> life was. Holy on the roof. All right, listen, it is a crazy news week. Where to begin? I, I, there's so much that was interesting this week. I want to ask you, Yeah. what to you was the most interesting part of the week? Not the most important, but most interesting to you, Alex. Uh, the discrepancy in how Duolingo traded versus how Robinhood traded. Because if you had said the fintech company will perform less well than the edtech company, I would have been like, every VC has lied to me if that's going to be true. And yet, 
here we are. EdTech's looking great and FinTech took kind of a hit. So I'm still digesting this kind of like post-unicorn IPO liquidity. It's, it's strange to me. Yeah. And so obviously I'm an interested party was an angel investor in um, Robinhood. Congrats. They are trading today. A, thank you. Uh, $36.11. They went out at $38. I think they hit 40 at one point. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at it right now 40.25 yeah. is the 52 week high. But some amount of this is I think due to the fact that they gave a third of the shares or something like that to their uh, actual rabid user base in their yeah. direct IPO product. Do you think that had some sort of impact here or the summer? What, what do you yeah. what do you think is going on here? I think there's a lot of things that went into this, but that's the most interesting one because when Robinhood announced they were going to open up IPO access for their users, people were stoked. Like, oh my gosh, we finally get to have kind of similar footing to these large uh, large investing groups. But suddenly, if you take away a big chunk of an early retail demand, you really change up the supply demand curve. And I think, you know, frankly, traders on platforms like Robinhood probably were pretty active in trading IPOs in general. So if they have shares at the IPO price, it probably reduces the frenzy around first trades and makes it maybe harder to have an expensive pop. Now, you know, Jason, Bill Gurley is going to love this, you know, because all of a sudden right. doesn't seem to whine about on Twitter. But Robinhood probably expected a, a little bit more after pricing at the bottom minute of its range. There is does seem to see, be a big disjoint, be uh, a big disconnect between what the press is reporting and what we as the investment community, and we have both represented here, and, and to a certain extent, I represent both having been a yeah. former journalist, there's this big gap between, oh, my God, the IPO pop and that being the definition of success. And then what we all experience as investors, which is I invest in the company where it's like, I think, $30 million. So 30 million to 30 billion. Don't take a genius to do the math, a little bit of dilution. You know, this is a 500x or whatever. Um, pre pretty great return, even with dilution, because uh, I didn't continue investing in my pro rata because I didn't do that back then. Um, yeah, you could have bought like another two houses. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> that's a that's a costly bit of financial conservatism. Well, you know, it's one of the things about investing is you can learn from your mistakes. When I started, I was putting 2550k checks into companies like this and then just, you know, Walking I'll away. see you in 10 years. Yeah. Now, uh we just did we had two companies in our portfolio that were raising at 300 and 600 million. We own 10% of the company. They're raising 30 million, so our pro rata is 10%, you know, ballpark of that 30 million. Sure. And we actually filled with our syndicate and our LPs with SPVs, special purpose vehicles, mm -hmm. those yep. $3 million bets to keep our 10% ownership in, you know, companies that were worth 300 and 600 million, we had five to 10% ownership. So we're actually maintaining ownership at those big numbers now. Um, so hopefully that pays off. But what do you think that disconnect is about where, you know, on CNBC, they're just like, Oh, my God, it didn't pop. And it's like, well, aren't we supposed to price these things? So they don't pop? Like, what, what does it say that it does pop? Yeah. So I talked to a lot of CEOs on IPO days. So I've done just uh, over the years, uh, dozens of these calls with people that are literally sitting there in the room watching their stock begin to trade. And I, I managed to kind of learn around the edges how they think about pops. Every CEO taking a company public wants to see 10 to 15% gains in the first day. It makes them look really good. It gives their employees something to be proud, proud about. All the investors they just had to lock in for the long term during their roadshow they sold shares to have a great first day. It really just like smooths butter over the entire piece of bread. Hmm. And, and, and I don't, I don't mind that. I don't mind the, the mechanism. Now, I, yeah. IPOs are anachronistic to some degree, given how they're done, but the media and cable news, I would not conflate because okay. uh, I, I don't watch cable news at all hmm. because I, I don't have time to waste on that. And I would not say that, you know, tracking 
the views of different CNN anchors or CNBC anchors is the, the way to gauge media sentiment because Jim Cramer is what? Very loud. And I don't think he's indicative right. of what of what I do or what you used to do, Jason. Yeah. I, so I do think there is something to that nuance where if you're on TV and you have the ticker, you have something to measure. The entire point of CNBC uh, or Bloomberg is up to the minute. And if you want something up to the minute, having a data feed that you get to feel the pulse on makes it feel more live, just like the score in a basketball game. Absolutely. You, you tune in and it's on the screen, it's moving up and down. So you have a scorecard. It is one of the appeals. But I think there's this misconception that this would be a failure or, you know, a win plus or minus 10%. Actually, to the majority of people who hold shares, it doesn't actually matter. Uh, certainly doesn't matter to me because the way I look at this now, and I'm curious your thoughts, the putting aside any of the trip ups that Robinhood had with GameStop, and we could talk about those, obviously. Yeah. But putting that aside, when you look at the actual metrics of this company, uh, it was 18 million when they filed their S1 in terms of accounts, 17.x percent were active every month or something. And then you had this incredible uh, revelation that now they're 22 million. So maybe you could speak to the scope of or the scale of this company and what you think is possible. Yeah, I think if you here. look back to the start of 2020, and then if you told us where we we're going to be today, we would be very confused about what changed. But there was during the pandemic, an enormous boom in savings and investing activity amongst consumers. This drove Robinhood, it drove M1 Finance, it drove, I mean, eToro around the world. I mean, Coinbase got an enormous lift from this. Even Bitcoin began to trade better. People just had a lot of cash. Like, Jason, you didn't leave your house for a while. Yes. I didn't. And I spent no money. I went grocery shopping once a week and I just ate bananas. Like, I just saved money. And so people put that to work. And so Robinhood is enjoying this enormous boom, not just in the appreciation of the value of the stock market and crypto trading in general, but also just folks having cash. Um, so Robin it's so is, true is just as one aside yeah. think about all the money we saved not going on vacation or business trips or conferences yeah. I looked at those three and I was like you know for me I was doing four speaking gigs a year all of that's business class travel and really you know great hotels all that money just didn't actually flow during this you know Verizon never put me in business class I just want to say and then they sold me to really? Apollo yeah huh. uh, I protest no, I who, mean, do you, who, who owns Tech Crunch now it's still Verizon Media Group until the Apollo deal closes, and then will be owned by. It'll be called Ye Yahoo, I think. Again, when oh, you'll be so you'll be right. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, am I correct that it's a private equity firm now owns Engadget yeah. and TechCrunch? Well, the deal has been announced and agreed on, but hasn't yet closed. Uh, so we're in that that awkward period, period in which, yeah. like, you you broke up with someone, but you still live in the same house. That's kind of where well, we're at. Just as we're in this uh, on this tangent, sure. What does that mean in terms of like management of your brand? Is there some? Are you guys just off on this island, just doing the best you can, or is there somebody like we have to hit these numbers and there's a sense of urgency? So TechCrunch's culture. Uh, this is my second time at TC, so I, I yeah. have two different kind of blocks of time at the, at the organization. Uh, the ethos of TC has been preserved through mm -hmm. all of the corporate Sturm und Drang. And so I, I'm optimistic that we're going to hold on to it again post-Apollo. But, you know, private equity has a reputation for a reason, so I'm not going to promise anything, Jason. But today, I, I freaking love TC. I still have the yeah. independence and freedom and flexibility and right. support, and it's great. So, I mean, frankly, I'm happy. I'm nervous because I'm being sold, but, you know, we'll have to see how that, that shakes out. I was hoping that, so I mean, I made a, I made a salvo in between the AOL and Verizon days of like, hey, any chance I could shake off and gadget or auto <laughs> And they're like, yeah, we don't know who you'd even talk to about that. 
<laughs> I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like trying to see if I can, or even TechCrunch. I was like, I'll, I'll take all of these brands. Like, you know, do you have a, <laughs> are they for sale? And they're like, we don't know. I'm like, who knows? They're like, nobody. Like, well, okay. it turns out the whole package was for sale and we're being sold and you'll love this, Jason. And for roughly 0.5 revenue, that's our multiple is 0.5. Not 13, not 27, 0.5. 0.5 times revenue. Yeah, we're going to make 2 billion and it. We were doing 8.4 billion run rate as of Q2, Verizon uh, Media Group, now Yahoo, uh, yeah. and we're being sold for $5 billion. That is a perfect private equity uh, moment because they could split these things up and then sell them in packages. And that's probably what will happen is Yahoo will go to somebody and you know the TechCrunch and Gadget brands will go to somebody. It's a, it's a smart move on their part. Are you getting a little sick of the cloud wars? Aren't we all? It's time for you to cut your cloud bill in half, get amazing customer support and save a hundy $100 right now. It's time for you to grow your business on Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E. If you're old school, you know Linode, no matter what kind of business you're running, whether it's a streaming app, an e-learning platform, or anything using machine learning, you need reliable infrastructure and hosting. Linode offers simple, affordable and accessible cloud computing solutions. Why use Linode? node instead of the competition? Well, there's no lock in you can change services as you please. And pricing predictability, they don't charge based on bandwidth usage. This is going to save you up to 50% from other major providers. And they've been around for 17 years. So they know what they're doing. They've been doing this forever. We use Linode for hosting this week in Startups Australia, and it is absolutely fantastic. We get 24 seven human support with no tears or handoffs. That's why Linode is the leading independent public cloud provider. See if you can cut your cloud bill in half today and save $100 at linode.com slash twist. That's l-i-n-o-d-e.com slash twist to create an account and receive that $100 credit. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, so back to Robinhood and, uh, you know, this sort of um, what the potential of the company is now. And then we'll back into Duolingo. Yeah, actually, I got a question for you about this, yeah, Jason. Because sure. uh, one thing I've been really trying to figure out is what happens next? Because forget Delta, let's just presume for the minute we're going more outside over time compared to last year. Sure. Um, this is going to impact a lot of stuff like uh, people spending time online could go down. People's time trading could decrease. And I'm trying to figure out how to think about Robinhood's growth in the back half of this year in light of the changing world. Because up to this point, the results have been pretty much pandemic re results that we've been looking at and they've been amazing yeah. like, what's your level of optimism that robin hood can keep up this sort of like not just year over year growth but sequential quarterly growth that has been so impressive yeah so when you go public the profile of the company becomes extraordinary and during a crisis uh you know the profile becomes extraordinary what happens during a crisis like gme uh, or in Uber's case, when they had surge pricing crises, is people go, what's Uber? Well, what's Robinhood? Right. And so this is a paradoxical thing. Now, I'm not saying venture capitalists or CEOs or shareholders hope to have a crisis. Of course, you don't. It actually turns out almost inevitably that the crisis grows the company. And so the more the company is put under the microscope and ripped apart or savaged on Twitter by consumers or virtue signaling people or anti-capitalist social people or correctly by journalists or incorrectly by content creators, whatever it is, all that sure. does is elevate the brand. So I think the brand is now getting elevated and people are going, oh, how, e oh, it's so easy to use. And you get this, what we call in the industry over the shoulder virality, 
which is somebody is opening it and somebody sees it over their shoulder and goes, what's that? Oh, and then they give them a little tour of the product, which is how Snapchat and Uber and DoorDash grew, is people would just hand their phone to somebody and show them the app. So I think that that's going to be the big thing. And then you think about adding um, Roths, 401ks, yep. and, you know, mortgages, all kinds of devices could be added here, which the I IPO access is one. So you don't need to have the same growth in users that you saw during that crazy GameStop stonk moment, which is like a moment in time, I don't think we're going to see again. Um, but you can take the existing base and just keep offering them services. So if you're a young person who's never had kids, and now you have a kid and you're like, Oh, 529, I can put money tax free for my kid. And it says click here 529. You're, you're not going to go find call your broker at Goldman or Alliance Bernstein or you know, where Morgan Stanley, you're like, I don't want to talk to anybody on the phone, I just want to take on my app and have that product. And so I think that that's going to be where you're going to see massive growth 22 million members, you open up, you know, some new product like a Roth. Uh, and now you get 1% of people use it. Now you've got yeah. 2 million people in that product. So that to me is a really great bullish argument for Robinhood over the next couple of years. But yeah. I'm very curious the next goes, couple yeah. of quarters, because they said in the uh, their last S1A filing, that they're going to see a revenue decline, or at least trading decline, in Q3 compared to Q2. Interesting to me, because, you know, yeah. we're seeing a lot of companies struggle with kind of leaving the pandemic. And uh, I wonder if that was part of why the reason Robinhood didn't have quite the debut it might have. Again, it repriced itself much higher, raised a bunch of capital. Yeah. The IPO was a success. But I'm curious if some of the declines were investors not wanting to buy into a company about to post a sequential Yeah, I mean, if you're day decline. trading it and you're buying it in quarters, that could be valid. The same way buying DoorDash or you know, a pure play food delivery at this moment in the pandemic would seem like, okay, we're all going to go back out to restaurants. So maybe is there something other than DoorDash to buy? Is there something that is part of the reopening? Like, I don't know, taking a Lyft or an Uber there or sure. Airbnb is even better example, I'm going to go for take a couple of days off and go somewhere post pandemic. But now that seems like that's off. So I think in all these, the, the markets are so chaotic right now, this maelstrom of Delta, Plus, like partial reopening, it, it does feel like a little um, schizophrenic. Yeah. It, it feels exhausting is what it feels like. I mean, yeah. I keep figuring out what's happening and then three days go by and everything's different again. And I have to call everyone back and I'm like, all right, remember that stuff you told me last week? What's going on now? And I, that's getting tiring. I would like to know <laughs> for like a month what was happening without having to reframe everything. It was so clear that people were going to be going on vacation and all of this pent up energy and money was going to be spent. And now you're right, I, you know, I really didn't consider that with Delta, maybe there's another three months of staying in. So that would argue that DoorDash, you know, and Robinhood would have another boost because maybe yeah. people would stay home and spend less money. I think the ultimate trend here with all these companies is once you have a sticky product on people's phones, I always ask, like, why would somebody stop using this product? What's going to yeah. replace it? What's going to displace it? You know, and you look at DoorDash or Uber or Airbnb or Robinhood, this like recent cohort. I don't see anybody displacing them for a decade. So I think you have a decade run when you get this kind of escape velocity, in the mm. same way Google and Facebook and Amazon got those decade long runs. And then it's up to them to not screw it up in the second decade. Yeah, you know, part of me is like, well, once these these Robinhood users who are, you know, first time investors, as, as they love to stress with their small accounts, getting their feet wet, buying shares in companies they love, which is all good to me to be to be clear. Like, mm. if I told them you should move to Fidelity or Vanguard, and I showed them those websites, they would be oh. like, yo, is this my grandfather's website? Are yeah. you kidding me? Like, it's there's no brutal. confetti, the buttons suck, the UI is terrible. 
I had to literally Google a Fidelity feature the other day to figure out how to use a feature in Fidelity I already use because I couldn't find it. And Jason, I get paid to click my mouse. Like, I can find yes. things. No, I, ha I had literally had a similar thing with my Morgan Stanley account. And I'm like, why do I even have this? Yeah. And I, the reason I have a Morgan Stanley account is whenever there is a stock distribution from venture funds I'm in, that, that's just like the easiest, lowest friction. But yeah. then I'm like, oh, now I got to move these over to Robinhood. And I'm like, do I want to have this many shares in a Robinhood account? <laughs> and you then would be Robinhood's star user, though. You'd be well, like yeah, user number be, one. You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of shares going back into there from Robinhood. But um, it, it does become, I think, really hard to go backwards with these paradigms. Like It, it would be like, I'm trying to think of like a really, what was the worst food ordering experience i think it was grubhub i don't know if you ever used i haven't used oh, grubhub, I used grubhub in college yeah it was terrible i mean it was just so arduous to just get to checkout and then you use doordash or uber eats and it's you're just they're like here's your last order <laughs> you're <Yeah>. like yes <laughs> go it you're, would be like going from ride hailing on your phone back to calling a taxi company exactly that that like, is exactly what it'd be like okay now Duolingo was yes. up 36 percent in their ipo now, it's a, it's a smaller footprint. It's a $5 billion market cap. Um, and they've been trading pretty, uh, pretty flat since they went out 31 times their 2020 revenue. Yeah, and okay. then it, they had just under 100% growth in Q1. And then they had, uh, I think it's 45% midpoint growth in Q2 based on their current estimates. Got it. So it's a fast growing company. Uh, tell me about Duolingo. Are you bullish on the company? And I, I'm bullish on humans wanting to do better for themselves, and I'm bullish on tools that help them do that. I don't know if self improvement. If, yeah, I, I'm big on that. I, I think the world, the world's so much better than we think. Like right now, thanks to Google Translate, I can read anything on the internet, yeah. which people forget how awesome that is and how different Crazy. it is. But I think the, these digital abilities are going to stay popular, and people travel a lot. You know, yeah. and the world's smaller, and flights are generally cheaper. And I think I think language learning is key, and they have an amazing consumer brand and back to your earlier point are you going to delete it for something else and I, I think the company now with more capital than it's probably ever had after this ipo has lots of room to double down on products so I, i'm bullish on on the movement i don't know what the stock's going to do tomorrow but i will say raised its range priced above its range and then had a killer first day big success i mean the company put yeah. up a lot of points for edtech jason and for startups out there looking to price their next round here is some good news you know for that argument with your vcs yeah, EdTech has been a really difficult category historically in investing because every EdTech company saw their customer as school districts. Ugh. And school districts, um, you know, they basically will change software, you know, like they paint, you know, the building. <laughs> like it's probably on the same cadence, like every five years they paint it or something. So every oh, that's five generous. Or, yeah, okay. So maybe it's kind of like when they replace the windows, like every 20 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, it really does not change that often. And I'm like, you're going to run out of money before they even sit for a demo. Like it's going to take you a year to get them to demo. And yeah. all the success I'm seeing are people who are just like, you know what, let's go direct to parents, let's go direct to the consumer and charge them a price that's around the price of Netflix. And when you charge somebody the price of Spotify to learn a language, or musician, which we're investors in, or tone base, two music companies we invested in, or Steezy for Dance, we're invested in, Calm for Meditation. You look at those companies and Fitbod for CrossFit, they're all consumer subscription and they're all, you know, around the price of Netflix. And I, I yeah. think that this is going to be like the new cable channels. And that's why we have, I think we have seven investments in consumer subscription. 
today, many small business owners are busier than ever. And because they're focused on managing and growing their businesses, they can't spend the time they need to on recruiting. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find and hire the best candidates for free. We have had such a great experience finding two more producers for this week in startups, researchers to sort through all the deal flow I get. And it has been amazing. It's a great place for you to look for a job. And it's an even better place for you to post a job. So many talented people are sitting there waiting to hear about your career options for them. And we use targeted screening questions to get our roles in front of the most qualified candidates with the experience, skills, and motivation we need. Then we use simple tools to filter and prioritize the top candidates for interviews. And best of all, LinkedIn's network now has over 740 million professionals all over the world. LinkedIn Jobs is going to help you find the right person for your role. They're so confident that you're going to love LinkedIn Jobs. They're letting you do that first job posting free every week. Nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn. They're waiting to hear about their next career adventure. And you just have to go to linkedin.com slash twist and post that job listing for free so that you can make their dreams come true and have that great employee join your team. What are you waiting for? You can get that free job posting right now. LinkedIn.com slash twist terms and conditions apply because they're giving you something for free. Yada, yada. You know how it goes. So it's interesting. One, Netflix being kind of like a price anchor or Spotify is a price anchor because I yeah. know the amount of like value I get from those two products and I subscribe to both. And so to me, if you ask me for the same amount of money, I have an expectation of like what you're going to give me for it. Uh, the other thing is it's funny to hear us be so bullish on consumer tech and subscriptions because if you go back like, you know, eight years yeah. ago, VCs were saying, don't sell to consumers, they're higher churn. It's like yep. selling to SMBs, but worse, your ACV is trash. And uh, here we are with Spotify doing great. Netflix is still crushing it. Duolingo showing this is a viable model. Consumers have really changed their behavior. And I think that uh, it's good to see that model get the respect uh, now that it didn't get back when it was unfashionable. And you got to attribute that to Spotify, I think, and Netflix saying, if you pay us, we'll give you something extraordinary without ads in it. Mm. And... I don't know about you, but I am looking at my collection of streaming services. And I've realized I am now getting pulled out of the advertising pool. It's harder and harder for advertisers to reach me because I have the YouTube premium. Yeah, YouTube. I don't know if you pay red for that or something. Yeah, it was called YouTube red. I don't know if they call it YouTube premium now. Wait a second. Oh. They change your logo when you have it. Yeah, pre <laughs> they call it YouTube premium. Now it used to be red. And okay. so your logo changes to premium. What's really interesting our premium, I think it's 12 bucks a month. You don't see ads, which then has made my YouTube consumption go through the roof because oh. I watch Sopranos clips. I watch sports clips there. I watch all my sports shows. Instead of going to ESPN and trying to find Knicks coverage, I just type the word Knicks in and I can watch all my Knicks coverage with no ads. Then I have Hulu. Hulu has an option for no ads. I elected for that for whatever it was, four bucks extra a month, I think. NBA Lee Pass for 40 bucks extra. You can have no ads. And what you see is the the arena video. Yes. Uh, which is really great. I love which it for like watching MSG want. games, which yeah. is what you want. And then Netflix and Disney uh, and HBO Max have no ads. Yeah. So I think I'm kind of, where do I see ads anymore? I don't really, I see them on social media, I guess. And yeah, Twitter, I, see, right? I see them on Twitter. I can't wait to pay Twitter to take my ads away. But it's funny you bring this up because uh, my spouse and I were watching Hulu the other, the other, I think last week. 
and there was an ad played and I was like, honey, what is, what is the differential in price between no ads and ads? Because I'm 99.999% sure it, we should not be saving that money because I'm about to lose my mind if I see this uh. ad one more time. And, and YouTube, to be clear, we're, we're going to get to, um, I think Alphabet earnings in a little bit, but like YouTube's ad load is excessive. Like if you ever use straight up YouTube, like just no it's ad blocking, no, it, it's like there's multiple pre-rolls and then mid-rolls. They have really leveraged They're going for it. that product. They're going, yeah. They are going for it. They did. Se- Let's just pivot to that. Sure. I think it's really important. And you do see the mid-rolls, uh, which are super annoying. And then the pre-rolls constantly. It feels like every video has a pre-roll on it. And I don't think you can opt out. I remember when I was in the partner program back in the day you could opt out of having ads on your videos. Okay. Now, if you're on YouTube and they store your video, I don't think you're allowed to opt out of ads anymore. Um, <laughs> which Oh, man. Google just gets more and more evil. I mean, like the, the, Google's need to increase its ad density of its products over time has made them hollow out every experience they offer to the point in which I don't like to use their stuff for that ad block. It's brutal. Um, I use an ad blocker, and the only time I feel guilty about it is when I'm on like a journalist site, and I will undo it on specific news sites where I want them to get the ad revenue. Uh, but I don't I don't feel well, I mean, I don't feel bad for it in other places. And it's not like I'm an ad clicker anyway. But looking at YouTube, specifically, it grew 80% year over year, $7 billion. Uh, I mean, pretty extraordinary. I, the, growth. the growth is crazy. It's getting close to Netflix and revenue scale, uh, which it is, is simply it's exactly crazy. the same, right? 7 billion both this quarter. And uh, what's really fun is if you look at the uh, the Google network revenues, so kind of like the, the off-site Google stuff, the ads they run, mm. historically, a big chunk of, of Google's ad business, uh, it's now just $600 million more in the last quarter than, than YouTube. So YouTube is about to kind of surpass this critical old piece of, of Google revenue. Uh, but the, the YouTube gains were very impressive. But I'm curious what you made of the Google cloud changes, because revenue to good, losses declined. I was pretty bullish about Google cloud, and I, I don't know how you view yeah. it. Um, I think that they hit a key milestone, which was the cost of providing the service was less than the revenue the service brought in, right? I mean, I think they're still investing in it. But um, it's really hard to displace Amazon web services, because Amazon has just got this relentless march towards how little margin they can have. Now, we don't have insight into each of the product lines at Amazon. uh, But the scale of that business is crazy. But Google's cloud is super important for them to win as well, because if Amazon just has the biggest cloud in the world, and Azure and Google Cloud fall too far behind. mm, Yeah, you can't, you don't want a a monopoly in in public clouds. But, you know, here's a question for you, Jason, because you talk to more startup founders than I do, which is saying something. Um, I'm hearing tweets and I'm hearing some complaints about AWS pricing from startups and, uh, and maybe even some growth stage founders. People are just a little bit dismayed at how much AWS can wind up costing them. Is yeah. that going to help Azure and Google Cloud or is that just complaints and it's not going to change much? I think this is sort of like, you know, ride sharing drivers complaining about getting paid where it's like, it's never going to be enough. Everybody always wants to raise. So even when it's a double the minimum wage in the country or it's 15 or it's 25 or they give minimums people are always going to ask for more uh and in this case they're always going to ask for a smaller cloud bill they they throw <laughs> you know they're they're going to be like this is too too much and you know if the, if your startup grows but they're not this generation is not comparing their cloud computing costs to buying servers and racking yes. them yeah and just 20 years ago you know, there was a line item when you were raising your $3 million, you know, series seed or series A, your $3 million series A 
500,000 right. in servers and co-location facilities. And yes. you, when I did Mahalo, we racked servers. And then at a certain point, we we're like, oh, the cloud, eh. you know, in the cloud, we, we had so much traffic that the cloud charged based on the amount of traffic you used. And when you have your own uh, fiber line, you don't get charged for usage. No. And so all of those like, kind of things that are now competing with each other are going to ultimately drive this down. So it's, I think it's, it's much ado about nothing. Um, and it, it actually gives Azure and Google Cloud, you know, IBM and other people's clouds, the ability to compete. Um, yeah, it's, well, it's a great it, entry there. I, I mean, it's, it's the other thing that's going to be interesting is, I don't know if you know about serverless. Um, but there's this concept of like, you can build these little objects that run on the internet. Mm -hmm. And when somebody goes to hit a website, it fires it up, runs it, they run the execution, and then it shuts itself back down. Yeah. And so this can cut down for some tasks in computing 90%. So with software, you're going to keep seeing the software race down the utilization on the network, which then kind of games the cloud. Um, and the same thing with storage and, and other things getting cheaper. So well, uh, the, the growth of, of usage of these public clouds is crazy. So uh, Google Cloud grew, I think, 54% year over year in Q2. Azure was 51%. So very, very close there. I think AWS was, I couldn't find the number, but I was just looking for it. I think it was 37%. But I mean, think about how much total spend we're talking about going to the public cloud just over the last 12 months in Q2. I mean, it, it's, it's billions and billions of dollars. And, uh, you know, thank you VCs for financing all the startups that are currently uh, living off of it because it's, it's going great for the majors. It, it definitely has changed everything in terms of the funding of startups. You literally took out 20%, 30% of the cost and the time. And yeah. the time would have burned months of setup and runway. So really, you know, you could have as much as a third or more of your startups cost being the setting up of your office space and your cloud. You start looking at that and you're like, wow, you can just put that towards developers or you can fund many more projects, you know, a 250k yeah. check with a two developer startup can last them for two years, you know, they. So th this just came up. To, I was talking to a startup actually here in Providence. Uh, there are some proud to report in my, yeah. in my, in my new adopted there'll hometown. There'll be more. <laughs> actually that, that's what this founder told me he's like even in my the floor of the building we have a little office and there's two more that are venture backed i was like okay good news but uh i asked him how long his two million dollar uh, seed round was going to get his company I'm like how much runway is this and he didn't give me an answer in months he said 20 to 25 product cycles and i was like ah. that's the coolest metric i've ever heard someone probably bring two weeks sprint or something three weeks sprint yeah who knows but i mean like that to me shows that they're not thinking about just running out of money they're thinking about where they're going to get to in terms of what they're building and if i was an investor and i'm not uh i think that would jazz me because it seems like playing offense versus defense it is pretty amazing when the the clock ticking down is not making your decision making delighting customers is and it really it is why when we syndicate uh, a deal to the syndicate.com, which was like our previously was on Angelus and now we do it there. Yeah, we specifically say, we, we, we will only syndicate you if you have a minimum of 12 months of runway, but we're looking more for 18 to 12, 24 months. And the reason we do that is we tell them like, we want you heads down thinking about the customer for at least a year, uh, hopefully 18 months. So you don't have to pop your head back up and raise money. Now, of course, in this market, I was gonna say, <laughs> I, we I, we literally had to change our accelerator schedule. I'll give you some numbers on this. Sure. We have over 300. I've invested in 300 companies in the last decade. I'm not sure how many of them are exactly active, but let's say two out of three. Um, so maybe 225 are still effect, uh, you know, in effect. 
We have 65 companies currently raising money or in the process of closing. Out of and the 225. Out of the 225. One in three, basically. And there were, were people who are closing before that and people who are thinking about raising money. But having that many in process, I've never seen. Yeah. And it has broken our internal <laughs> systems because when a fundraising happens, you go to your existing investor, you have to get them to sign off on it, read the documents, agree, and then decide do they want to take their pro rata. It, with 65, that means every business day, 20 business days a month, I've, I've got to be making three or four decisions a day and going over three or four sets of documents. The lawyers in our industry are now saying like, we need four days to turn around documents. We need five days to turn around documents. It used to be like, we can turn around documents in four, two days, you know, no yeah. problem. Just give us two days, uh, maybe three. And now it's like, yeah, give us a week. We, we got just wait. I've never seen this level of activity. Yeah. You think founders are doing well with ample secondary in the markets. Look at their lawyers because the lawyers are doing fantastically right now because everyone needs them right about now at the same time, which means they have enormous leverage. Great place to be. Well, I mean, and attorneys are not getting a summer break. And a lot of VCs are not getting a summer break. I'm supposed to be going on vacation. And it's like, I I'm scared to death to go on vacation. because I'm just like, what's going to happen with all these deals. And we're basically, uh, we came up with a term that we that my new term of art with founders is standing pat, <laughs> which is the term in draw poker, you know, when you say, Oh, I want two cards, I'll take three, I'll take mm -hmm. two when you do draw poker, like the old cowboy poker, not hold them. You would say, I'll take two cards. You give two cards, they give you two new cards. Standing pat is I don't need any new cards. <laughs> so right, I'm good. We're just like, we're standing pat, we're good. We're not adding to our position. We're not, you know, going to lead this round. We're just going to stand pat. And I've had to tell companies that we may have actually participated in or led, like, we're going to stand pat because we just can't get to this deal. Are you concerned about your portfolio's performance in the near future? Well, JP Morgan, BlackRock and others are projecting public equity returns of just three to 5% over the next five years. Analysts at Bank of America urge investors to consider real assets as part of an inflation strategy. So where are the major players putting their money? Endowments for Yale, Harvard and other top asset managers are looking into alternative assets. According to Masterworks research, endowments over 1 billion are investing 55% more in alternatives on average. If you're looking for a very interesting asset class that's uncorrelated with the stock market, it's blue chip art. Masterworks.io sells shares in multi-million dollar paintings by artists like Banksy, Picasso, and Warhol. According to Masterworks, contemporary art has appreciated 14% annually from 1995 to 2020, outperforming other real assets like real estate and gold. I just had the founder, Scott Lynn, on the program again, uh, episode 1232 for an alternative assets roundtable, and he shared some great insights around inflation, appreciation, more. Go listen to episode 12. 32 masterworks.io is a fantastic idea and they're executing at a super high level i think it's really genius so sign up today at masterworks.io and if you use the code twist you'll skip their 30,000 person wait list see important information at masterworks.io slash disclaimer so tell me a little bit about uh where it, things are most busy because I'm, I'm curious I, I know that the kind of series a plus thanks to tiger is super active is the pre-seed and seed stage just as busy as uh, the later stages? I, I would say yes, um, but I would say it's close. So okay. what's happened is anybody who's got a Series B marketplace or SaaS company, it's a good question, anybody who's a marketplace SaaS company or consumer subscription, that's growing. If you're a growing company, 
you're going to get a valuation that is double what it was three or four years ago. Yeah. So what would have been, okay, you're doing $10 million, we'll give you five, seven times that. So we'll do a $70 million valuation, an $80 million valuation. Now, all of a sudden, it's 10 to 20. So you got $10 million in revenue, you're going out for your Series B, you know, between 100 and 200 million would be the valuation, and there'll be people lining up to put in that $20 million check. Uh, and so what I've told them is, you know, if you were, if you're planning on raising money at any time in the next 18 months, do it now. Now. Do it now. Do it now. Yeah. Because that's, if that's people, clear. it's like, there's a party, people are popping bottles. If you want champagne, you know, like get a get glass, a glass. Get a glass. There. <laughs> and just stand there because <laughs> someone will pouring. top you off. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's going to top you off. Like you, you should go get that, get that champagne right now. And then you don't know, deploy it slowly. Um, and then what's happening at the earlier stages, which is really weird that I've never seen is um, not quite this craziness at, at the at the series B level that is well documented with Tiger and other people participating now. What's happening is somebody will close a $1 million round, you know, at for 10% of their company. Sure. And, uh, you know, maybe they would have previously been a six, seven or $8 million company. But you know, in that zone, it doesn't really matter all that much. Because the outcomes are so much bigger. So okay, if you're an early stage investor, you kind of get comfortable with a $12 million valuation where it might have been six previously. The round fills up, people find out the round is filled up. And then another $2 million shows up and says, Oh, you know, this person or that person who's notables in the round, we want to do your series A. It's like, we haven't gotten the money for half yeah. this round in. The wires haven't hit yet. We can't the raise the next hit. one. Exactly. And so what I say to folks is close that round. Give everybody a hard date. Your money gets in Friday. If you don't get your money in Friday, uh, we've now opened a note at 20. <laughs> and I've had a dozen companies do this where they close the $12 million round. Literally the next week, they opened a note for 20 million. And then they say to any other investor, we closed that round. We were massively oversubscribed. We have a $20 million cap note that we're going to keep open for the next year for value added investors. We consider you one of those. If you want to be in that round, we're happy to have you, but or we can wait until we formally start the round. And then those are starting to fill up. Wow. So, so there's the, the amount of money being slung around in the startup world really does to me kind of mirror the amount of money we're talking about with these public company earnings, because the, the numbers are getting to be almost out of my my ability to kind of reckon with them. Yes. Like, you know, Microsoft and Apple both north of $2 trillion. I mean, at some point, I, I begin to lose it. Like, I think around $100 billion, I begin to kind of like lose the, the, my feet on the ground and float yeah. away. And these valuations are very similar because I, I understand the math you're talking about when you say, well, if it was six and now it's 12 post, okay, exits are bigger and it's, it's, it's pre-seed money and, you know, okay, it, totally. But like when I was learning about VC, you know, 10, 12, 13 years ago, pe you know, people were talking about how they had to have price control and all of this stuff. And I feel like everything that I was taught is now <laughs> just gone. Like I learned about the stock market when Exxon was the biggest company in the world. Yep. Like, that was a freaking different era. Like it's a, it's an entirely brave new world. And I'm, it's fun, but my gosh. Well, I mean, if you think about the multiples, the multiples are compressed, even as big as these two trillion, three trillion dollar companies are, their multiple is compressed, because people assume it can't grow like a startup. But Amazon, or let's say YouTube, the better example, 80% sure. year over year growth, that's kind of startup level growth, you know, like later stage startup growth, early stage, you're trying to triple quadruple your revenue year over year from a million to three or three to nine. Once you get up to 100 million, you're, you're trying to get to 150. When you're at 500 million, you're trying to grow to, you know, 750, 800, you may not double year over year. 
I mean, you can, but it's, it's not easy. And you look at Amazon, 113 billion in revenue for the quarter. It just it's absolutely crazy. But Jason, you forgot the, the punchline to that particular joke. What happened this morning to Amazon stock? Went down. It went down. Now, now, now tell the people why, because this is the funnest part of the show. Well, I mean, I, they missed their revenue number by 1 billion. I think it was a little bit more than that. But essentially, they it was 115 was the expectation they hit 113. Yeah, I think if I'm correct. Yeah. So I mean, but just looking at the run rate of 443 billion is insane. And then you just compare that to, you know, GDP, they would be the 27th <laughs> in the world. That's uh, pretty extraordinary. They would be right by Austria and Iran. Yeah. So here's why I think Amazon took a bit of a hit. If you look at their um, Q2 earnings report, and you spend a lot of time going past all the bullet points they put on top about new Kindle features they announced yeah. that you're not going to use. I love that. <laughs> I don't know why they still do that. Like, why do they do that? It's like, really? You you even produce the Kindle? Oh, when's the last time I even saw a Kindle? Okay, I, I let, well, let's not erase ebooks here. I own two Kindles and I'm a big fan, but like, I, I use them to read. You know, to be clear, yes. uh, if you go to the financial guidance section of the Amazon Q2 report, uh, you'll see that uh, for Q3 of this year compared to the last year, they're expecting net sales to grow between 10 and 16%. So Amazon has kind of like reached the end of its pandemic growth surge. And I think investors yeah. added, added higher expectations. And critically, it was priced like it was going to grow more quickly. And so it mm. lost some of that growth premium. Amazon still had a great quarter like if i ever do 113 billion a quarter please put yeah, a pound in my head and, and a scepter in my hand but like <laughs> compared to expectations and how they were valued it yeah. was a bit of a miss and so I, I have friends who struggle with like great quarter and it's a miss and it, it's it's technical but like it, it it was a surprise i think to a lot of folks when they saw that headline number and then what happened to the stock so yeah and I, there's also going to be this you know changing of the guard jeff is no longer in charge so i think that makes some people nervous and there's got to be some profit taking going on. I mean, if P if this was like such a pandemic run up and everybody was getting their, you know, you know, six months worth of remember that last year? Oh, yeah. Six oh, months yeah. on your shelves and like fighting for, you know, wipes and we were wiping our food down and wearing gloves and masks to unpack our cereal. I, 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 I was one level below that. Whatever level of panic that was, I was one step down, but not yeah. not too far different. I mean, I, I literally remember a month of wiping my groceries down and like wearing a mask. My wife is like, don't bring that into the house. I'm like, the tomato soup. Don't bring it into the house. Okay, I'll wipe it down. It's okay. <laughs> I, can I, I, I can top this though. So uh, we, had, uh, we had a friend in town from college and she was in town for like three months. We did dinners every week outside uh, mm -hmm. at her house. It was lovely, actually. And uh, she said that her family, uh, early in the pandemic, were they would order food in, you know, and then they would re-microwave it to, uh, mm. to kill off, whatever. And yeah. they were actually microwaving their salads before they ate them. And I oh, was great. like, there it is. Yeah, the, no. The peak. The peak That's of COVIDness. Peak panic, yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't Hard think pass. your salad has that. Don't you want so, lukewarm salad, Jason? Just lots of limp lettuce? I, I like, I'll tell you, the Frise salad with the warm egg and the lardon on it. Okay, yes. that's fine. That's yeah. fine. It, but that's wilted. It's not. It's not microwave. It's not. Yeah, I don't think anybody will <laughs> <laughs> microwave uh, any of this. Well, here's the quote from the CFO. Our customers are safe and healthy and ordering from us. And we know there'll be more vacations or be more mobility. There'll be things that probably people shied away from last year. And that's all good. But it does tend to lead them to do other things besides shop. So we're adjusting our run rates in the period that we see that happen. I do think shopping was like, 
I think a pastime as was wagering on sports or wagering on stonks or wagering on crypto. And yep. that is all coming apart. What's your take on China banning Bitcoin? Um, and then <laughs> some of these, uh, you know, new regulations coming in, I think, it, I think was it uh, Binance is now uh, deprecating their service in Europe to a certain yeah. extent. Well, are you watching all this and the and the news tightening? And, and what are your thoughts? Yeah, so tether yeah well look 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 let, let's do this in, in chunks so yeah. first of all binance it, it turns out if you get really really big and you're not actually following regulatory guidelines around the world eventually it catches up with you it's <laughs> like technical debt for a financial company it's called right. regulatory debt and it matters because people eventually start doing mean things back to you so binance cleaning up its act actually i like i hope they figure this out I, i've talked to the ceo i i i'm generally bullish on crypto exchanges CZ. in general cz yeah. CZ is great. I mean, yeah. I, I've, I've talked to him once or twice, but I, I liked him. So I hope it goes well. Uh, selling derivative products in Europe, that's a lot of work. You got to have a, a big compliance team. Not a surprise. Uh, China. Holy crap, Jason. Yeah. Rewind the clock to 2018. Late 17, early 18. Chinese venture capital system blowing up. Everyone's talking about how 996 is going to like take over the US tech world. The US people are, are you know, the, te the tech workers are lazy, panicking. VCs were just trying to get on the next plane to China to pour money into the space. And then overnight, China decided that a huge swath of venture-backed companies uh, are now going to go non-profit, can't list, or raise capital. It, it, it's, it's like a thunderclap that we, that we almost missed because we're in North America versus China. But like it was an enormous regulatory turn after they went after Didi and Tencent Music and so forth. And so to me, there has been an enormous tenor shift in the mm. Chinese market that should unless I'm totally freaking stupid, slow VC investment in the country? Um, I gotta think VC investing from the West in China is over. I would think if I'm an LP and yeah. a fund comes to me and says, hey, we got a China strategy, I would look at them and go, okay. Cool. Jack Ma had a China strategy too. Tencent had a China strategy. All these education companies had a strategy and I'm sure the Bitcoin miners had a strategy. How's that strategy working out for them? Because whatever your strategy is as a VC, it's dependent on entrepreneurs to execute on the ground. Yep. Those entrepreneurs are getting sent to re-education camps if, you know... Uh, if they can disappear Jack Ma for several weeks, kill off the anti-PO, and then yeah. make Didi remove its apps three days after it went public in the US exchange, if I remember my timelines correctly. Yeah. Uh, I don't care about your China strategy. There's one China strategy and it comes from the top and that's not you. Yeah. So like in terms of risk, it's terrifying. Yeah, and if you have, th this would, th if you have risk capital, yeah. you're going to look at what is the spectrum of risk to return and where can I put that money to work? If it felt like, you know, China was trending towards transparency and engagement, great. I think people made the right bet in 20, you know, 10. Yes, absolutely. You know, actually, you know who the guy was who actually did this more than anybody was the um, Pat McGovern from IDG, which really? you and I will know. Yeah. Um, he opened IDG in China before anybody. He was the OG in China. He created all these publications there. And then he was like, wait a second, I could create a venture firm in uh, China. And that's how he made all his money. People don't know ah. this. Um, but he, uh, rest in peace, Pat McGovern came to the first TechCrunch 50 slash disrupt when Mike and I were partners and sat in the first row in like a $4,000 suit. And Mike and I were like, holy shit, it's Pat McGovern. And we're like, how did he get in here? Yeah. And they're like, he bought a ticket. 
he bought a VIP ticket. He's gonna be at the party tonight. I was like, oh my God. So I walk over and he's like, I'm like, oh, Mr. McGovern, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming. And uh, he's like, I follow everything you do, Jason. <laughs> That's not creepy at all. That's and I was totally like, fine. Okay, Pat McGovern. <laughs> and it wound up because people don't remember he owned the demo conference. Yeah. And Mike Famous and I, 15 years ago, were like, we're going to kill the demo conference that charges 20 grand. Yeah. We're going to sink that thing. And then what does this guy do? He's so gangster. He buys a VIP ticket and comes to the event and sits in the first row. Yeah. How's that for some, some reconnoitering of the, of the opposition? By the way, the TechCrunch 50, which is the one that Bing sponsored all those bars in the lobby? Was that 40, the 40 or 50? I think that was 40. Bing, bing, bing. 40. Because that, that's that the was, time yeah. that you guys got me so drunk that I puked <laughs> on the side of your venue. And then I also threw up in my badge. And so when I woke up the next morning in Palo Alto, uh, where I was supposed to be, to be clear, oh, um, no. I, my badge smelled bad and I couldn't figure out why. And I, I was like 18 or something. So, Oh, my God. Know, that was childish years. Well, you know, that was when San Francisco and the industry, um, I think it was a little more fun and, you know, less content. It was less cantankerous between all the parties involved and the scale was still tiny right like facebook didn't exist or if it did yeah facebook didn't small. exist at the time yeah and the things that did exist were 10 million users it, there wasn't this discussion we're having today about these things are so big yeah. should they be that big okay so china tightening the noose game over we're in charge and bitcoin happened right before that so what yes. is explain to me your thoughts on bitcoin getting banned in china and the miners getting kicked out uh before they do this crackdown on IPOs because this they don't do anything without a plan. Yeah, it's China. They have 100 year plans, 200 year plans. They're, they're kind of like Putin in that regard. So what is the plan here? If you had to guess? So the plan is to eventually roll out a digital yuan as they're currently doing. And uh, why why does that matter? Why do we care? Why not use a crypto? Well, it's all about uh, the opposite of decentralization. It's all about centralization. Mm. If you have a digital currency that the government controls, you can set effectively negative interest rates against it. You can have people's money go away if they don't spend it. So if you want to induce consumer spending, you don't send everyone a check like we do in the US in hopes that they'll spend it on something. You just tell them that their money's going to go away if they don't use it. And so mm. suddenly the government has much, much more control over the local economy. Now, if you're going to have this digital bond, people have to use it. And if there's an alternative, say, I don't know, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, maybe, they have a way out and you can't mm -hmm. have that. And there has been constant saber rattling about the banning of Bitcoin in China for so long and the mining thereof that everyone in the crypto community just viewed any China news as FUD. Just ignore it. Yeah, and that it's was, fear that and was, certainty doubt. You guys are haters. Have fun being poor. poor We're going to no, run psyops on your replies because you, Alex and Jason, criticized cryptocurrency in some mild way. Yeah, crypto is fine. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, but, you know, and then they finally... After several minor things over the years, the big one happened, and now you can't mine crypto in China, and they they seem to be very serious about it. Uh, Bitcoin's fine because it is relatively decentralized. Uh, I'm more of an Ethereum fan if I had to pick one chain to rule them all. Um, Why is that? Smart contracts? Uh, well, I, I, think, I think it's a programming platform, and that's yeah. very exciting to me because platforms yeah. tend to be worth quite a lot of money. Bitcoin, it's the main argument for its existence is there's not that many of them. I don't care. And uh, it's the oldest one. And I don't care about that because IBM's older than Google. And you I sound like, like that guy, Michael. What's that guy's name? Michael Saylor? Uh, I don't know if it's an insult or a compliment. Michael Saylor is the guy who owns micro something. MicroStrategy. He took his entire company, which was providing research or something. Yeah. And then pivoted it to being basically a holding company. And he just, 
he is like when I say Bitcoin maximalist, I mean, to the nth degree. Um, but I, it does seem like China is now saying, hey, if you have our digital one, your key insight there, I think is 100% correct and astute, which is control, control, China wants control of everything, the data, their citizens, their monetary supply, entrepreneurship, new products and services. And critically, where, where capital goes, if you go back and read the English language and translated versions of the Chinese government bulletins regarding the crackdown on ed tech, I know that's kind of that's nuanced, but it was a big chunk of the stuff we're talking about. Uh, one thing that was mentioned was excess, excessive capital flowing into the space. Mm. And the way this is being read by everyone who's a China watcher who knows much better than I do, is that China wants to take the direction of its investment away from what it's been so good at consumer social mm. fintech, all this stuff and point it more towards hard tech, like semiconductors and so forth. Uh, I, I don't know if you can shift an economy by fiat like that. I don't think you can, but that seems to be the, the overall uh, read of the situation. But like to me, Jason, if you think of the most impressive Chinese companies, you're thinking, you know, Meituan, ByteDance, Tencent, you know, Alibaba, you know, these, these big, big names that you know. Yeah. It turns out these education ones are huge. Well, and they were valuable until recently. If you if you want to get a sample of this, look at the stock chart. If you're listening of Tal Education, T A L Space Education, and you'll see how much ground it's lost since February. It's like ninety percent of its value or something crazy. Yeah, like it was one hundred forty three down to three dollars. It's just unbelievable. It, and that's really interesting. They went after education because they also sort of indicated in their language that you shouldn't profit off of education. This is a state run thing, which dovetails with exactly what I was saying. Is Control. You know, our education system here in the United States is broken. Uh, we do such a terrible job on a on a public basis that people want to route around that and have competition of buying apps. Actually, the other one we're in is brilliant.org, which does math and STEM. And that's an affordable subscription that people are going crazy for. Um, so this to me seems like the central control of the currency of education and of communication platforms. Uh, yeah, Gautau, Gautu Te Chedo. I think is how it's um, the one I'm talking about is Gautu Techedo, which is G-A-O-T-U. Tal is a separate company. Both are down 90%. But if you have the digital one, I don't know if you heard about this, but the real cynical case with the digital one is it provides even more control than print money in China because let's say you say something about Xi Jinping, mm -hmm. uh, like I think he could do a better job. Ooh, and then we like, spicy. oh, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, he could uh, be a better listener. <laughs> you say that, they could literally be like, huh, Alex, Jason, having that conversation on your podcast, mm. beep, your money is frozen. Yeah. And because and they know, like, they yeah, know, yeah. They, they can just freeze you on the blockchain. Okay, we've got all your money. Um, why don't you guys come down to the office and talk to us? It's yeah. like, okay, my money is turned off. Okay. Oh, yeah. And by the way, we put all of your homes on the blockchain. Boop. Now we have... We own your home and come talk to us and then we'll put you in a re-education camp and your penalty is the house we just took for you in your home. Well, and then they know every transaction you've made with every person. And if yeah. you, they'll basically move to the point where they say, you cannot use real money. You must use blockchain money. Think about, you know, we opt into using Apple Pay, but we can, if we want to do transactions anonymously using cash or whatever yeah. we want. Um, 
they will know every single thing about you on a communications platform basis and on a monetary basis. Yeah. And there is no room for dissent. And so the interesting question is, where does this take them economically? And where does this take them in a technology perspective? I, I think, I mean, call, um, look, I'm going to... I'm going to come out as a capitalist once again on this show, but like as a capitalist and someone who's in favor of liberal democracy, I, I don't think central planning is the way. Be careful, you're about to get canceled. <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm not. Uh, I just, I, I, I just don't. You're admitting it? Oh, no, I'm a, I'm a vehement capitalist, but, but I'm a very yeah. loving one. I'm a kind of a Danish capitalist, if you will. Okay. Uh, I'm a big fan of progressive tax rates. Uh, but as a capitalist and, and a liberal uh, Democrat with small and a small d, you know, to me, this just looks like the long setup to a, a series of, of misallocations of resources. Like, I mean, Jason, why why does Z know better than the entire combined wisdom of his economy, where this money should be deployed and, and so forth? And also, it's just an enormous human freedom catastrophe to arrogate to one person human authority about what people catastrophe. Can, yeah. And it's happening in front of our eyes. Yep. And this is not the number one story in the world. We're talking about all kinds of other things. The largest country in the world yep. with, you know, basically tied with us for the most influential economy in the world has now shut down cryptocurrency, public market companies, taken over Hong Kong, saber rattling at Taiwan, building more nuclear uh, silos, building more nuclear <laughs> reactors. And the God King said, I'm in charge forever. And he just took control of everything. Like what could go wrong here? Yeah. So actually, do you know how seriously I'm trying to take this? I'm, I'm actually going back and rereading old uh, Xi Jinping speeches from earlier uh, in his in his tenure to get a better vibe for his politics. And I, I've added a, a, a Marx no uh, novel, <laughs> Marx novel, uh, a, a Marx book to my uh, my book club with my dad, because I, I need to go back to my college days and figure out what 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 some of these phrases are, because I've forgotten some of my basic Marx. And so like I, I feel like that's how important this is. But Apple had earnings this week, did really well, makes them all in China or makes a lot yeah. of it in China. How do you feel? I mean, like, I'm not going to lie. I feel kind of I feel a little heebie jeebie about that. Uh, you know, for me, yeah, I think what we're going to see is the great disengagement. We had this great engagement policy for decades. It felt like China was possibly going in the right direction on human rights, on open markets, on free trade. And I think we got lulled into thinking, hey, this is just going to be a straight train to democracy. And, you know, when they go into Hong Kong, I'm sure they'll have kid gloves and they'll be reasonable. They don't want to go into Hong Kong and just, just you know, stir the stuff pot, up. tear stuff yeah. up. And they're just like, yeah, what's the uh, newspaper? Apple? Okay, yeah, that's shut down. You're all in jail. Okay, who's selling <laughs> books? You're all in jail. Great. And uh, by the way, the court system is now not in Hong Kong. It's on mainland. So whenever you guys get a speeding ticket, you're going to cross the bridge and come to mainland China. And we're going to talk about it over there. Yeah. The end. No even, discussion. Even more, even more than this, Jason. Like, uh, I forget which American clothing company it was, but they decided to not buy cotton from the, I'm going to butcher this, sorry, everybody, the Xinjiang region, region where the where the Uyghurs where are. Where the Uyghurs are, because they literally have the Uyghurs going into fields with zero sense of history, irony, uh, or anything. They literally have three million people in a concentration camp walking over cotton fields to pick cotton. Yeah, well, they, they don't care about looking bad. Um, but, no, uh, they, no. this, this, uh, this American com uh, cotton company was then excoriated on Chinese social media by Chinese nationalists uh. for daring to push quote false narratives or whatever. So th there, <laughs> there is that you have to be okay with being silent on cultural genocide or right. you're out of China. And uh, if that's the binary, okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you for I mean, making you it, easy made it easy for, for us. I mean, Daryl yeah. Morey does the most modest of support for Hong Kong. 
and LeBron James has nothing to say about it. Uh, and, and all the and listen, I'm not just singling out the NBA, but the NBA is a very woke group of individuals who are very involved in social projects. So yep. is Hollywood. And you think about those two people are exporting to China, and they will for the extra 10% on their dollars, 15% on their dollars, do whatever that communist regime that has 3 million people in a concentration camp just for an extra 10 or 15%, like would you or I take an extra 10 or 15%? To sell my soul? No. Yeah, I, I was like, you know what? I don't want, L I had all these LPs from China, big, you know, oh yeah, well, you know, big, we're talking big pools of capital who would yeah. give me giant pools of capital. I was like, yeah, not for me, thanks. Do you, don't take do you Chinese want, LPs, yeah. period. Yeah. And to be clear, just to listening to this, because it's gone on for a couple of minutes now, uh, no beef with individuals in China, no beef with Asia as a place, um no, the citizens of china are you know are great humans and yeah yeah they're the victims in all this yeah and so i just i just wanted to make sure we threw in that caveat they were not conflating the chinese people with the chinese government very different things so i think the chinese people would very much like to have a path to having a voice and some freedom and freedom of religion maybe freedom yep. of speech yep you know and have some you know i, I don't know what the solution is for the people making hardware over there, you know, Amazon basics cables or iPhones, I think that that is less of a problem for me. Um, you know, because they're not turning people over to the, you know, authorities, like, you know, Facebook would have to if they were over there. But I don't know if you knew this, they have iCloud in China. And iCloud, the way Apple was forced to do that, because the, the iPhone is getting popular in China and Hong Kong. Yep. The way they were doing that is they outsource the cloud ownership to a third party. So Apple could say, we don't turn anybody over. We don't even run iCloud in China. And it's like, yeah. you don't run iCloud. The company they told you runs iCloud runs it. So right. Tim Cook can say everything he wants. He can virtue signal all he wants about human rights and, you know, uh, whatever uh, practices. But if you look in their backyard, if you're using an iPhone in China, and Apple is super privacy conscious here. They're, they're handing over dissidents. They're literally handing over dissidents. Well, that's because China. there there is no privacy in the there China, is no choice. digital system. Yeah. No <clears throat> so, anyways, uh, yeah. Apple's earnings though fantastic. Uh, Q3 Max sales were up eighteen uh, percent year over year to eight point two billion. iPhone sales were up fifty percent. Jason, a very fantastic number to thirty nine point five billion. Play that's, the music, dude. We need that music from what is the the what's the NPR show? Um, uh, all things considered or uh, no fresh no air? no the, no there's one for uh market uh the one for markets i don't listen to, uh, i don't uh, i don't marketplace I, uh, yeah oh marketplace okay anyway they play uh, music on and now let's go to the numbers and so kai rizdal does all the <laughs> is, that, is that your the, npr voice that's my npr voice okay the dasdaq was down uh, i don't minutes. know if it's accurate or uh or a good joke it's, but it, it's, Anyways, Apple had a good quarter is what I'm saying. Uh, what, what drove that? Was it people staying at home or having stimmy checks? Feels uh, it like was, stimmy it, checks. It was iPhone. It was a really good iPhone cycle for the company. So that may be partially driven by stimmies. Um, you get a stimmy. What are you going to spend that on? Well, Why not upgrade how, my phone? I mean, it depends on how cash conscious you are. Like mm -hmm. if a check changes your cash position by a material percentage point, it may allow you to buy something you couldn't before. And maybe that drove a lot of this. So, and it, if you were thinking about upgrading next year, maybe you just do it this year. So you're, you fast forward a cycle. I also think those iMacs, I don't know if you saw those beautiful iMacs that came out. Oh, 
It's gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, I thought those were beautiful. I, I almost, I, I almost bought one and I have no use for one. Like, I have no use for none. one either. I mean, I, I have a windows machine yep. with a, you know, a Dell with a 49 inch monitor. And then I'm using the Mac mini here on my studio setup. Yeah. And I go from the M1 Mac mini to my, my windows machine. So I have a gaming machine, 49 inch monitor. And then I, I go back between the two, but uh, I, I like to have large monitors. So that's a yeah. tiny monitor for me, but I bought it for my mom. She loves it. I want, I want the red, I want the red one and I really want an M1 chip. So I have, I had this work MacBook Pro that I'm currently on and it's one generation before the M1. And so it's got like uh, six M1's cords. M1's a game changer. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I just, I wonder if I spilled water on it. I would get, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I mean, but like, I'm very tempted. You just, to yeah, get, to fell off your myself. desk. It fell off your desk. I well, mean, now I can't do it because now I've said it on the podcast. So they'll be like, oh yeah, we uh, heard you. We'll beep it out. We'll beep. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I literally <laughs> bought the new MacBook. Because uh, I had an old Air, and I was like, you yeah. know what? I was going to get the Air M1 or the MacBook M1. I was like, yeah, let me get the MacBook M1. And it is unbelievable how long that goddamn battery lasts and how fast it is with uh, your browser. Ah, uh, yeah. So I run a know, lot of tabs, so that that's pertinent to my interests. But like, if you're I, part of the fifty plus tabs, you know, and multiple monitor club, oh yeah, it is so amazing, and it never heats up. You never have the fan come on, whereas yours sounds like it's like a VTOL taking off like it's a Joby. So literally, <laughs> literally the fan on this thing runs whenever I don't have the AC turned on in my office, but I can't have the AC turned on in my office because I'm it blows onto the microphone. So I have to literally <sighs> just sweat it out on pods. It's terrible. It's brutal. The new one, you get zero of that. The battery lasts forever. Uh, it's just an extraordinary. I got, uh, I got a question. Yeah. How did this happen? Because Intel has been making chips since before I was born. Yep. Apple newer to the semiconductor space. And mm -hmm. yet, they come out with the M1 chip, and it's like all the things you just said. I, I can't recall the last time I got hype about a processor. It was the Pentium 3 when I was like 15. You know, yes. like this is, how did, how did Apple do this and not Intel? Okay, it's a great question. I think what happened was Apple got very uh, interested with the A series of chips in the iPhone of we need to control our destiny, and the chips we're getting from other people are not going to get us where we need to get in terms of a competitive advantage. And once they start started realizing uh, graphics and battery life are two of the key features of the phone. In other words, if your battery lasts longer, you can do more intensive processing. If you can do more intensive processing, you can do take better pictures, do better picture software, you can play better games. That combination of needs said purpose driven chip. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have unlimited money we are selling billions of these devices. <laughs> and then the engine in our car is made by somebody who doesn't understand what we're building and the scale of this effort, we have to do it. Now you start doing that. And you start realizing, wow, the margin on these things, right? Because when you would buy a Dell computer, or whatever, you remember, they would offer you an arm chip, or the Pentium or whatever it was, the it was uh, AMD or Intel. Yeah, AMD or Intel. And you're talking about what was the difference? $200 on the cost of a computer? It was all steep to get steep. the Intel chip. Yeah. So you're like, okay, uh, $1,200, $900, or I can get a 1200 to 1200. But I can get 32 gigs of RAM versus eight gigs of RAM. We made those trade offs. And I think that's why purpose driven silicon came to the phones. And then they were just like, you know what? What is good? How do we win laptops, yeah. batteries, uh, yeah. and these stupid fans going off? And then once 
so I think the the iPhone gave them the dexterity in the muscle memory, you know, to do it. And then they just got emboldened. Like, if, imagine if we had one chip for the iPads and for the desktops, then we recapture all that margin. And then we can make it specific to the use case. Well, what's the use case? They could just look at the data. People, people use their laptops to surf web. That's it. It's 90% of what people are doing. They're in a web browser. All yeah. their software is in a web browser. Even the software they download that's not a web browser is just a wrap web browser in a lot of cases. So, Which is why TweetDeck runs out of RAM. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And so I think purpose, and then I think that's why Elon put hit, made his own chips for uh, the Teslas. Like he's got his own circuit board that they made specifically for that use case, which is real-time processing of, you know, visual data across X number of cameras. So that that seems to be the beginning and the end of it. And yeah, I mean, Intel's over. I mean, do you know who should be really mad right now is Satya Nadella because he yeah. inherited Wintel, right? Yep. This 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 union of Intel and, and Windows, and then Apple just came along and was like, "Oh, you guys are terrible at this," and they just made a much better chip on its first. Try. It's the M1 that's so good. Yeah, Can you imagine I, how I dope the, the M3 is going to be? It's going to be. Yeah, incredible. I consider the M1 like the A. 15 or whatever yeah because yeah, yeah, they're yeah. up to I, I, I think they're up to 14 or something with it oh like, has it been that many gosh i'm getting yeah old. it's been a All lot right. i'm trying oh. to look the the a4 was march 10th to september 2023 that's the a4 wow. in the series so and the a14 bionic is september 2020 so i mean they're doing it every year they come up with a new a processor um and that that's the soup to nuts you know experience that I think Elon is doing with Tesla's like he makes every part not being dependent on anybody in the supply chain is I think Tim Cook and Elon came to that observation at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Actually, Tesla is working to secure different elements for its batteries from direct from mining companies now yeah. going back to the going direct thing. I mean, they're, they're literally saying, look, let's just we're buying a lot of this stuff. We don't need to go through anyone I've, else. I have literally have talked to Elon about this many times over the years. And he's like, materials come in this side of the building. Cars come out that side of the cars building. come out the middle. And then in the middle, there's a battery pack being made that goes into the car. But yeah, basically, yeah. you know, he said some. I, I remember when he was building the Gigafactory. I usually don't talk about my conversation with Elon, but uh, this fun. is public knowledge now. The Gigafactory um, out in Nevada, we, he showed it to me when he was just building it and gave me a tour. And he's like, this is the company. The company is the factory. Uh, it's not what comes out. The factory itself is the product. And I, that was like, oh, my mind is blown now. The Amazon is the and warehouse tech. Exact analogy. Yes. Like Amazon, Amazon, when no one was looking, was building robots for its factories and building these hyper-efficient um, logistics setups. And everyone thought it was just like this bookseller. It turns out the, the, the warehouse is Amazon. And the yeah, they the, bought that company, the right? They bought that robotic company that I does the couple of More them. than one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah they yeah, bought yeah, the yeah. one that's like the flat one that zips around and yeah it looks like a hockey puck with it with looks like a yeah, hockey yeah. puck zipping yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. around it does seem like this the super cycle of tech combined with the pandemic is this like perfect um super storm if you will of adoption of this technology because i, I don't know what it's like in providence but i'm assuming when you go to a restaurant there's no more waiters you just take a picture of a qr code you order from your phone on toast or something and then they bring you the food with a runner. It depends on where I'm going. Um, yeah. I, I live in a in a kind of a small businessy part of town, kind of one uh -huh. of those collegiate streets, but lots of little shops. So those are still pretty hands on. But even at those, now the QR scan thing, pull up the website is, is happening. 
uh, even in those places. And, and a lot of restaurants are still mostly, you know, pickup. Like there's this little mm. cafe in my house called uh, it's fantastic. I eat there like more often than I should because it's around the corner. And, uh, you know, they just have a whole table now set up permanently for pickup. And like, that's just now a de facto thing. So it's all digital for me, essentially. Yeah. I, and I think that if you think about the uh, economy post pandemic, whenever post pandemic exists, which I was I thought we were in the post I'm so depressed about I'm frustrated. I have a lot of emotion about like, how we screwed up the reopening because yes. I thought this was the YOLO time we start going to concerts again and I want to go to Broadway I wanted to do everything this fall and summer and my lord these selfish people who won't get vaccines we have to figure out a way to get them over the Be um, but before yeah. we go to Pinterest and we, and we wrap up like let, let me just make a point about that I haven't seen my parents since December of 2019 and yeah. if Delta blocks me if we don't fly them out here I, I don't see them till this Christmas because some people won't get vaccinated I shall be mad I miss them. I like them yeah. a lot. They raised me. I would like to give them a hug. <laughs> but, but they're vaccinated, I assume. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my whole yeah. family is full of rational scientists. So no worries. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, and then people are like, oh, my God, the people who are getting vaccinated, the people who are in the hospital in this town are vaccinated. It's like the town is 90% vaccinated. And you're, of course, some the people are, who do come, some are going to have COVID, but they're not dying. Um, but anyway, my point of this all was. Yeah. I think a lot of that's one of the things that's going to stay. And the idea that being a waiter or a server, I think we're going to just get rid of millions of jobs in this country that were hostess, server, maitre d', uh, and um, register or whatever, cashier. Mm. I think those are just everybody is applying that technology. And there were restaurants who did not ever think they would let people order their own food from their smartphone who are like, this is so much better. Oh. Jason, this there's is so a nearish uh, to me. That's big enough that so Nick doesn't have to bleep it out. Called Al Forno's, and it's a it's a relatively well known Italian restaurant. If you live in the Northeast, you've heard of it. It's it's yeah. it's fancy and lovely, and uh, and they came up with a really amazing takeout strategy during the pandemic. Like this is the restaurant where like it was like only a valet parking, and like fancy people go there for like yeah. you know like birthdays. You know it was it was it's, and now they're like parking slot four, and we'll bring out your Italian food. Like everyone adapted so quickly across yeah. the economy. It's, it's been. A real human story of uh, of flexibility in the last 18 months. All right. Should we end on Pinterest or going back to work in offices and the delay oh, let's of that? Do, let's do going back to work in offices. I, I read your notes about this and I, I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, well, I think we talked about this on the All In Pod. Uh, you know, we predicted a couple of episodes ago, like, of course, if you're in tech and you're going to reopen your office or, you know... Uh, you're going to force people to be vaccinated or they can't come to your office, especially if you're doing hybrid. Why would you allow unvaccinated people in the building? And so, of course, I guess Netflix, Google, and a group of people are now going to force you to be vaccinated if you come to the office. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the carrot. And I think that has to make its way to sporting arenas, restaurants. In San Francisco, there's a movement to force. Uh, if you want to go to a bar, you got to show your vaccine card at Lollapalooza. They said uh, you have to show your vaccine card. And if the FBI put out a notice, if you uh, make a fake card, you're going to go to jail and you're going to get a huge fine. So like there will be enforcement of people doing fake vaccine cards. So I think that this is the only choice we have to okay. keep the economy going is to have vaccine. You know, I hate to say it, but you know, like the carrot didn't work. And now there's going to be a stick like you're just not gonna be able to participate in certain things in France, Israel. 
and now the United States, period. Yeah, which is which is reasonable given that the vaccine is safe and it's free and it helps protect other people and stop being so selfish. Now, to be clear, if you can take it because you're immunosuppressed or so forth, we're not talking about you. We're talking about people who can get it yeah. and won't. Those yes. people are the problems. Not yeah. not three-year-olds who can't get it yet. I'm talking about the yes. people who are 37 in you know, Duluth who are yeah. refusing. I hate you. Everyone else <laughs> is fine. Uh, question, though. So I- I'm... You're you're not at the office right now. No. I can tell that because I've been yep. to your office. I've not been yep. to your house, and that looks no. more like a house. Uh, yep. I'm at I'm home, home, and yep. uh, I'm feeling great. Nick uh, running the pod with uh, with Charles here at the at the at the Charles you know, is the studio. at the office, and Nick is at home. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, like you know, we, I used to show up to do this with you, and now yep. we just do it like this, and I feel fine. And it's better. to me to me remote work is uh, has, has saved my life as a as an individual way before the pandemic. So it let me do stuff, uh, you know, and support my spouse. So. You know, to me, the whole hula blue about companies wanting people to go back, I, I just think they have big leases they'd want to fill. <laughs> I can't figure out why um, these progressive companies in the work management sense uh, yeah. are are turning into the, the most boomery sounding companies. Like, come back three days a week. No, I won't. I refuse. Yeah. Absolutely I, not. I think it's a great rotation. I mean, if you were forced to come to an office, you would look at other options. The end. Oh, instantly. Yeah. Instantly. And so I think that and I was predicting this, which is, you know, if you want to keep the most talented people, and some number of them want to work from home, y- it's so hard to find a game changing employee talented team member, you're just going to have no choice. I mean, if you're Netflix, if you're Reed Hastings, if you're Tim Cook, and your top person in PR, in marketing, in engineering and design, whatever it is, yeah, whatever, if they say, you know what, I'm working from Tahoe, or I'm going to work at a startup. What are you going to do? You're so, going to let them work from Tahoe and probably subsidize so they have gigabit internet because that's the most precisely. efficient thing to do. But going all the way back to the first part of our conversation, I would go to the office and I would do social things. I would yeah. I would stand in the kitchen and I would talk to people. I'd make a couple of connections. And to be clear, those would occasionally be useful in work sense. Sure. But when I was doing 50-50 SF and, and, and Providence, I would like go to SF and do company stuff for two weeks. And then I would go home and work for two weeks. Right. And like my output differential as a writer was so extremely different because yes. here, the only distraction is my puppy when she needs to pee. Two minutes and then I'm back. You Which is actually I mean? kind of a nice break to, to if you're yeah. a writer, to get that little fresh air break is actually it, accretive to your performance. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, she's been great for that. But I mean, like if you told me tomorrow that I have to start. Uh, driving to the train station, taking the commuter rail to Boston, buying yeah. a small muffin somewhere along the way, and then walk across Boston to the office, and then shake hands with icky people, and then like sit down at a desk. That that's that's like two hours of my day. You better be paying me like a hundred percent more if you're going to take an extra four hours of my day. Because what? Yeah, no, I I think you can't put the genie back in the bottle. No, I think that what could be very interesting is. Uh, and I've been thinking about this, like if I move to Austin, if I move to Austin, I could find an area where people could afford to live and mm-hmm. walk to work um, in one of these small towns there. And I was like, you know what, that could be quite charming if I had my own event space slash, you know, there was affordable housing, I think actually people would love to go to work three days a week, or for four hours for a day and get out of their house. Like if I said to you, hey, we're going to on Wednesdays, we're going to tape the show and have lunch. And we're going to do, you know, uh, uh, a meeting about the editorial for the week. And we were working at the same company, You'd be like, dope, yeah, I get out of the house one day a week, I get to see everybody. So it does seem like that hybrid model will become the default. Yeah. Uh, 
B- back in the uh, my my first stint at TechCrunch, we had mandatory fun time, which was I think like 4 p.m. on Thursdays, and everyone was supposed to come into the office at 4 p.m. on Thursdays and have a beer, and then it, it was a way to like engender camaraderie and make sure everyone yeah. knew where their badges were, and and you know what, it, it worked reasonably well. I, I have a bunch of people working for me I've never met, and that is the thing I miss most about this, and I and I hope we get back to and. I do think it's a boomer thing. Like you, you invest in a an Apple Starship four billion dollar <laughs> campus or your Google. I do think that those folks think great product is made in a space, and yeah. that that space is going to be a competitor. I believe they believe that. I, be- I also I be- believe yes. they're probably wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That I- it's necessary for all employees. It's probably. I'm wondering. Do you think the iPhone and the design of it could have been made remote? today with today's tools i think small physical product teams are always going to have a different set of requirements than the information workers that we're discussing yeah you know what i mean right. so like developer like, different than writer I mean, writers and developers different than johnny ive and steve Jobs. yeah like if you're if you're literally inventing a new like category of device you're going to want to sit in a room with mock-ups and touch them yeah good johnny ive can go to the office in the meantime i won't be uh <laughs> last question last question for you yeah uh, middle management and a lot of people that that thrived in the office environment um, feel increasingly superfluous to me in, in this in this moment of more productivity right. and going to work. So does this thin out the leadership yes. ranks of companies? Okay. Two great things that people will not talk about publicly, but is that it is being talked about privately on boards, on walk-in talks between investors and management, which is dead weight, middle management that, you know, set up the meeting, set the agenda for the meeting and basically lorded over people and made sure they were at their desk on time all that bullshit is gone because we're just looking at output and it's hard with remote workers to judge output but if you're forced to figure that out which everybody has just like the restaurants were forced to figure it out that what you eventually realize is okay those middle managers were doing nothing they were just really performative and maybe they wrote great tps reports but you don't need a tps report if your team is keeping track of themselves on notion. So self reporting is something I worked on with my teams and the investments is just have people write in slack what they're doing at the start of the day. And at the end of the day, reply to their own start of day with their EOD. And I wrote this whole article, which is my whole teams at inside and at launch, right? SOD, closing this deal, doing this, you know, uh, cleanup work, uh, reviewing these legal documents. At the end of the day, they reply back to it and say what they did. Total transparency, you'd manage yourself. And then when you leave the company, we can look at your end of weeks yeah. and what you did. And we say, okay, reviewing legal documents, we'll outsource that. That seemed to be 30% of what this person was doing. And the other two thirds, okay, you're going to do one third and you're going to do the other third, or we're going to deprecate what we're doing. We don't need to refill that position. Yeah. So it actually makes you understand exactly what everybody in the company was doing. Yeah. And, and that means no employees. middle managers. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that'll scale pretty well. And there'll be some other model for something else. But I mean, the, the idea of having like 13 layers of management between X and Y and your chart. I mean, and, and thank Over. God. Thank you know? God. I mean, those people were annoying. I, there was the people who would come by your desk and talk to you and take you out of your uh, rhythm. No. no yeah. Be like, hey, let's go. On. Can we go for a walk and talk? And you're like, hey, no, hey, I literally you're stealing my words. Yeah. You, you got you got a minute. No, I don't. Because it's one, no. it's 15. And two, it means that I'll have to leave late. <laughs> yeah. Don't you have anything to do? You know, yeah. like. And then you think about the cost of the space, then you think about the cost of reception, food, all this stuff. I mean, I think companies are going to save 30 to 40% on top of a 30, 
maybe 20 or 30% savings in salaries. Because yeah. when you are hiring, I mean, we know at TechCrunch writers in San Francisco and in gadget writers in New York, we're getting paid. It was double or triple what people working from home were getting paid. Vox's <laughs> average salary <laughs> is 45 to 50k, I think. And there I know I think actually, after, I was looking at Vox's because I was comparing it to uh, insides where we're yeah. paying $75,000 for our analysts. But it's you can work from anywhere. So I'm hiring people in Canada, in Europe from anywhere. And I thought 75k is pretty good for an analyst with four or five years experience to write and host events. Uh, and then if you look at Vox, their starting salary is 52k. So I think there are I, Vox I think that's, writers, their, average, that's their minimum, that's the minimum is 52. Yeah. And I think the average is 6570. And I was like, Okay, well, we're beating them. Uh, but TechCrunch writers were making 100k or whatever and gadget writers in new york were making 100k and it was you know i think that those salaries don't get reversed but i think over time you'll see salaries average yes. out from cities yes. and if if you were forced to you know take a pay cut or whatever it'd be like mm, take a pay cut stay in providence or move to a city like eh. oh i mean gun, gun to my head i'll take i'll take like i'm not gonna say it all but a, a relatively material yeah. pay cut to stay here because i, I like it here um but like yeah. yeah, I think you're right about the average of the salaries. I think we're both right about middle management. I, and to me, just uh, I, I actually have to go write a, a newsletter for TC. Uh, I think it's a better future. I think so. Like I, this is it's going to be painful. You know, there's going to be repercussions and things we don't expect to happen. But I think generally speaking, we're moving towards a more healthy conversation about work and, and work life balance. Uh, and, you know, thank God more choice. Yeah, I think it's really about choice. There'll be a group of people who wants to go to that office and be part of that. And there'll be a group of people who prefer to stay home and a group of people in the middle. And I think it's flipped power. Now it's like you don't get to lord over employees. This is how it's going to be. Yeah. It's going to be a negotiation. Um, and you'll just you, you can't dictate anymore. And you have to get comfortable with that employees are empowered and the best ones always have been they just didn't know it. Yeah, those top employees didn't realize that if they said I'm working from Tahoe at the lake, and I want the same salary that Zuckerberg would have caved, you know, and well, the world used to be run by VCs and middle management. And now it's run by founders and ICs. So ha 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 ha, the world has come towards me. Well, it is it is the the virtuosos, the people with the actual skill who actually move the needle forward and get shit done at a company. They are now absolutely recognized. And all the performative nonsense is, is sucked out of the system. So I think you're right. And, and yeah, that's, well, it, that is ultimately healthier. And it gives everybody a path. Just work on your skill provide some specific tangible benefit to the company or organization you're working for. And then you get all that time back, you get 10 more hours back a week. And you don't have to take a shower. And if you want to see your kids or your dog during the day, mazel tov, go for it. You still all have right. to take a shower. Don't listen to Jason shower twice a day. Be, be don't please, be gross. Sh please shower. Come yeah, on, please. Gosh. All right, listen, great job, Alex. Love having you on the show. Good and uh, everybody follow Alex, a l e x on the Twitter. And then uh for the podcast you're doing are you doing the podcast regularly yeah yeah we do a couple every week yeah 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 so uh which what is the name of the podcast that people should subscribe to because there's like 10 of them over at TechCrunch. yeah it's called equity uh equity we've been features. doing it since uh 2017 yeah. it's a it, it's a show if you like startups and vc and, and bantering about revenue multiples it's the show for you um <laughs> like because it, it's it, i've been on it forever and it's uh just it, it's how i kind of like digest yeah. what's happened during the week and we try to have a good time. It's about 30 minutes long, so it's not too long. And Perfect. Good times. Everybody go to uh, your podcast player and search for Equity or TechCrunch, and you'll find it. And subscribe. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.